The first reading is from Matthew chapter 16, 13 to 18. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And now from Acts chapter 2, from 36 to 47. The apostle Peter declared, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Please do... Uh have that passage, those two passages, open in front of you. It's lovely to be back in this uh, increasingly happy place right here. Um, uh, like many of you, I have uh, in my travels seen many uh, spectacular Christian communities around the world. Uh, just a few of the highlights. Um, the King Center in Chessington, where I did a mission some years ago, uh, is an evangelical church in Chessington, London, which approached its local council and said, look, there's no uh, community center or sports center in the region. How about you pay for half of it, we'll pay for half of it, uh, and then we will run it <clears throat> on behalf of the local community. And uh, the, the local council said yes, and they, for at least 20 years, have been running this wonderful sports center, community center, counseling center, cafe, and evangelical church at the heart of it. And uh, they have uh, seen many people uh, helped in, uh, to, in human terms, but also won to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Another church well known to many here, of course, is Redeemer Presbyterian in New York, characterized by world-class preaching and a love of New York City that is manifested in a number of ways. And that church, over its 25 years uh, led by Tim Keller, has grown significantly uh, through the gospel. You may not know of Christ Church Clifton in, uh, in Bristol, but uh, I was uh, really struck when I visited uh, to preach there that, that this is a church, a medieval church, a church of high culture, a high architecture, but they have somehow blended a very contemporary approach uh, that fits uh, their local context. And many people, uh, especially university students, uh, have uh, come to know the Lord there. Uh, then there's Island Evangelical Community Church in Hong Kong. This church, uh, a couple of decades ago, moved into an office block in the center of Hong Kong. They wanted to be part of the city. And uh, I think they meet over five floors now of a CBD uh, office block. Uh, a couple of the floors are for the church services. Uh, they, they, they film, you know, it's happening in one place, but then they, they film it and stream it to, uh, to the other floor. Kids ministry on another floor, cafe on another floor. And they have made themselves a, a beautiful part of Hong Kong City. I was also struck doing some work for Emmanuel Wimbledon. This is a classic middle to upper class uh, boring Anglican church um, that nonetheless uh, determined to give half of its income away to mission each year. Most churches think they're doing well when they give 10% of the budget away. These guys give away as much as they keep. The other striking thing about them is when they call for a prayer meeting, uh, at least half the church across the multiple services turns up. So you have an absolutely packed church for prayer meeting. I, I don't know if it's like that here, every prayer meeting that's called, but having led a church, I was struck. The thing I love about all these different churches is that they simultaneously hold the gospel firmly and are constantly revising, reforming, trying new things. Their conservative theology doesn't lead to a conservative vision, quite the opposite. It's because they trust the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ so much, they actually have a radical approach to reaching out to others. But none of these is my dream church. My dream church is in Acts chapter 2, in the passage just read to us, where in that one carefully constructed paragraph, Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47, Luke crams six aspects of compelling Christian community. And fortunately, I have uh, three weeks to unpack them. I'm just going to do a little bit uh, today. But first, a methodological remark about reading the book of Acts. Uh, you may know the book of Acts uh, recounts the first 25 years of church history from the resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem through to the arrival of the gospel 25 years later uh, in the Apostle Paul. And he's in Rome, the, the, the sort of center of the empire, and of course from Rome, the gospel spreads everywhere. But there are two mistakes that people make when they read the book of Acts. One is to see everything as prescriptive, 
The other is to see it merely as descriptive. The prescriptivists uh, look at this passage and say, everything you read here has to be happening today. And so they look at verse 43 and the mention of signs and wonders, and they complain that Justin hasn't done his fair share of signs and wonders in the last week or so. Uh, they look at verse 44 and see that the early church churches didn't have property, property they sh shared all their property, and so shame on you who own flats here in the city, and so on. People go so far as to look at Acts 28.5 and see that Paul picked up a snake that bit him and didn't harm him, and they think actually that's what's meant to be happening today. There are churches in the US where that is exactly an expression of worship to handle snakes. But narrative doesn't work like that. The epistles do work like that because they are exhortation, they are instructional, but the, uh, the narrative doesn't. There is a second mistake though, and it's an overreaction to the first, and is far more common amongst, can I say this, our type? Um, we, we get nervous about those who are too prescriptive with the book of Acts, and we look at the book of Acts and think it's merely descriptive. It's not about what ought to be, it's just what happened to be. But both are mistakes. Acts is not prescriptive, acknowledged, but it is not merely descriptive either. It is what you might say idyllic. It is deliberately idyllic. I think of Acts, and don't misunderstand me when I say this, as the founding myth of the church. And I use myth in its technical sense not to mean untrue. I mean an historical event or a historical account that has mythological status for a community. So you think of the official records of the Anzacs, the, they, the Anzac myth, it doesn't mean it's untrue, it means it comes to represent more than its history. Or for Americans, it's the um, uh, American Revolutionary War is their founding myth. The French Revolution uh, for the French. Um, Acts is like the founding myth of the international church. And there are ideals expressed on every page, especially this paragraph printed before you. It is the only summary of the church in the book of Acts. And it follows the very first gospel sermon and account of conversion. That's the way it's structured. So as the first and only account of what the range of activities the church did, following the first gospel sermon, I think there are lots of things to learn deliberately from this passage. First, compelling Christian community is grounded in the gospel, by which I mean the gospel message of Christ's life, teaching, healings, death, and resurrection creates the church. We already see this in the founding statement about the church from Jesus himself in our first passage today, where Simon Peter, for the first time in the gospel, declares, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, and Jesus replies with an interesting statement about the church. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my, by my Father. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades, will not overcome it. 
Now, there's so much to unpack here. Uh, A whole sermon on this passage would be excellent. And of course, I'd have to talk about how our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters uh, take this passage as the founding theology of the Pope. Uh, Peter was, you know, the founder, the rock on which the church was built. And in the Catholic mind, this status was passed on to every other bishop of Rome after Peter. And we could have a lovely debate about that. I don't think it's uh, correct. But I think what we can all agree on from this passage is that the church is founded on the acclamation first made by Peter that Jesus Christ is Messiah and Lord. And what is interesting to me is that this theology finds its first historical expression in Peter's first evangelistic sermon in Acts 2. Peter proclaims the gospel after Christ's resurrection and the church is created. Do you see how that's, uh, how the passage works? Luke um, offers this description of the church as really the conclusion to the first evangelistic sermon. So in Acts 2.36 there, we get the end of Peter's evangelistic sermon, and he says, therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah, the gospel. And only then, as you come down to verse 41, and uh, we, we learn that people are converted by this message, Those who accepted the message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And then comes the description. They, the 3,000, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to breaking of bread, to prayer, and so on. Uh, The logic is clear. Peter preaches the gospel of Christ's lordship and mercy, and 3,000 people are added. The church is created through the gospel. And then you get a description of the ideal church. The church is not based on denominational ties, on buildings, on culture, on demographics, not even on beautiful vision statements such as you've developed, a gorgeous and well thought through vision statement. No, compelling Christian community is grounded in a message the gospel, Christ's life, teaching, healings, death, resurrection as Lord and Messiah. Secondly, compelling Christian community is nourished by teaching. Nourished by teaching. We don't just accept the gospel of Christ's lordship and forgiveness. We follow the teaching of the apostles. Do you notice the very first statement of the ideal church that Luke, as the author of Acts, gives us there in verse 42? The first thing he says about this ideal church, they, that's 3,000 people just converted, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And then you get those other things as well. But the order is important to notice. Luke would not have said they were devoted to each other and prayer and breaking bread, oh, and teaching as well. Now, teaching is first. Not because teaching is always the most important thing, 
but because the teaching of the apostles nourishes and guides every other thing. Just as eating food might not be the most important thing you do today, but it nourishes all that you do today. It's the fuel. Teaching nourishes us for all the things listed in that paragraph. It nourishes us for the fellowship, for the prayer, for the breaking of bread, for awe, for giving to those in need, for being glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord adding to our number. But it begins with teaching. Our devotion to the apostles' teaching. And you see this in the rest of the New Testament. Paul remarks in Romans 6, 17 about the Roman church. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. There's a body of apostolic teaching that is to claim our allegiance. It has won us over, or in Luke's terms, we are devoted to that pattern of apostolic teaching. You find the same thing in Ephesians 4, beginning with its statement about Christ and the apostles, it leads to the building up of a church through teaching. Christ gave, himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Then we will no longer be infants blown here and there by every wind of teaching, no, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Teaching is how Christ forms himself in his body, the church. The apostles' teaching is a bit like a country's constitution. And we're meant to be textualists. You know, there's a debate about whether you're meant to read a constitution as a living, changing document or as a text that meant something when it was written. We are textualists, and we see the apostles' teaching as our constitution. In fact, it's more like our constitution, the legislation that flows from it, and the case law all rolled into one. Your mission statement at this church has the statement, Filling the city with the teaching of Christ. And I put it to you, that will be impossible until we are all first ourselves devoted to the apostles' teaching. The true church is grounded in the gospel and nourished by teaching. May I offer three reflections that flow from these two thoughts. One, real church growth comes through gospel preaching. It's worth just reminding ourselves about this um, because if a church is grounded in the gospel, its true growth will be growth through people hearing the gospel and becoming Christians. I mean, there are all sorts of reasons a church like this might grow. You know, it's a convenient location. People have heard about the wonderful Justin Moffat. Uh, 
they like the vibe. But actually, that really isn't church growth. That's just moving personnel around the various franchises of the diocese. Real church growth is growth through the proclamation of the gospel and people hearing it and being added to our number. True growth comes when we declare with Peter, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And only then does it say, about 3,000 were added that day. Now, of course, we're Anglicans, so we never expect 3,000 to be added in any particular day. We do things nice and slowly, I get that. But in our own way, we are still looking for the same thing. And so can I urge us all to do what we can, given our circumstances and gifts and opportunities, to promote the gospel. Because it is only as that gospel message advances that genuine true growth rather than personnel movement, will occur. Real church growth comes through gospel preaching. The second reflection is that we're meant to be people who trust the whole apostolic teaching, not just the basic gospel. Did you notice in this passage that having come to believe the basic gospel of Christ's life, healing, teaching, death, resurrection to be the Lord... This 3,000 that was converted through that gospel then devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, it says, verse 42. Devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is the ongoing teaching of the apostles, not just the basic gospel. And I just want to make this point. Maybe it's irrelevant for this church, but we can't be the kind of Christian who says, I love the gospel of Jesus I'm not so sure about what the apostles said. You ever met those kinds of Christians? Or just simply, I love the Gospels, I'm not so sure about the epistles. I I want to point out a logical problem and a theological problem with that thought. The logical problem is we don't know anything about what Jesus said and did that hasn't come directly from the teaching of the apostles. Our only access to anything to do with Jesus is through the apostles. So we're stuck with them. The theological problem, of course, is that Jesus appointed the apostles. In those gospels we love, he appointed the apostles to speak on his behalf like ambassadors. So the apostolic teaching is indeed the teaching of an ambassador of Christ. And so I suggest that if we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the foundation of the church, we are logically and theologically committed to the whole of the apostles' teaching, which is the nourishment of the church. A caveat, don't think I'm saying that being devoted to the apostles' teaching means you have to be devoted to Justin's sermons. Believe it or not, Justin is not the repository of the apostolic deposit. He is not the walking library of apostolic teaching. Where is that apostolic teaching now found? It's in the Scriptures. That said, I do think 
part of our devotion to the apostles' teaching is to insist that the senior minister is first and foremost a teacher. First and foremost, a teacher. This is the Anglican way. Uh, Did you know that Justin made only four vows when he was ordained as a priest? I made the same vows. There they are in our BCP. You can read them later. But the four vows are basically this, to be an example to the flock, to pray his heart out, to do all such studies as will further his ministry, and to be a teacher. And the ordering of the sacraments is part of that teaching. I'm not excluding sacraments. I I see them, I think the prayer book sees them as visible teaching. Now, truth be told, there is a fifth vow, and given there are a couple of bishops in the room, I better point this out. The fifth vow is to obey your bishop, okay? So, yes. Um, But in terms of job, that's the job. And it's worth pointing this out, and, and I like to go back to this, because having been a rector, I know the pressure to be lots of other things like a manager, a vision caster, a problem solver, a counselor, social worker, pep talk giver. (laughs) The pressure is so great. But we made four or five vows. And what I'm saying is part of your devotion to the apostolic teaching is to make sure Justin is first and foremost a teacher, that he leads through teaching in small groups, one-to-one, and, of course, in sermons. We trust the whole apostolic teaching. Thirdly and finally, the church is an educational community, and it always has been. Think of these words, teaching, learning, knowledge, mind, understanding, insight, discernment, comprehension. All of these words in the New Testament are sacred words because it comes from our founder, Jesus, who was the teacher par excellence. I know that in evangelical circles we're a bit nervous about thinking of Jesus as teacher, because we want to direct people away from his teaching to his death and resurrection for our salvation. I get that instinct, but a huge proportion of our Gospels is Jesus' teaching. He is our teacher. It is one of the principal titles given to him in the Gospels, teacher this, teacher that. And there's an awful lot of secular study into Jesus' teacher, much of it just the Christian community is unaware of. Because there's lots of study into how Jesus was similar to and differed from the rabbis of his day. One of the most important scholarly books on Jesus' teacher is simply called Jesus as Teacher uh, by a German scholar, Rainer Riesner, in which he laid out the evidence 
for the comparison and contrast with other Jewish teachers of the day. But one of the striking things Reisner uh, demonstrated was that Jesus clearly crafted his teachings for classroom memorization by students. All of the mnemonic devices we know from the time are in his teachings. They are developed into his teachings for memorization by students. And that is the other thing, by the way. The word disciple, you know, it only means student. It doesn't mean anything else. It doesn't mean adherent. It doesn't mean holy one. It doesn't mean follower. It doesn't mean devotee. It is simply the word student. It's the word used in all the classrooms of ancient Greece. Another fascinating historical study, uh, I apologize, but you know, you invited John Dixon to speak, so you know, is by this great Roman historian, Edwin Judge, perhaps our greatest living ancient historian in this country. Um, he wrote a, a series of real game-changing articles in the 1960s that laid out the evidence for the earliest church looking to pagans more like a school than a religious club. If you were transported back into the year 50 and went into a church, it would have looked more like a school than any of the religious cults that existed in the day. Such was the impact of Jesus as teacher. Such was the expression of students being devoted to the apostles' teaching. And did you know that the early church was far, far more rigorous in what we call catechesis, the instruction for our learning, than anything you find in the world today, the earliest church. Uh, I was blown away when I first read through the evidence we have that in Rome, around the year 200, when Christians are still being fed to the lions, okay, they don't have Vatican Library yet, they're still under pressure, in order to be baptized, you had to do 144 hours of catechesis over three years. One lesson a week after church uh, by a formal teacher uh, for three years with four weeks off a year. Um, that's just to get started in the faith. Uh, there was, we know, a fast-track program. If you wanted to go to school the hard way, the, uh, Jerusalem was your place. Around the year 300 in Jerusalem, again, they are still an oppressed minority here. Uh, you had to do, this is the fast-track method, three hours of study a day for six days a week for the seven weeks leading up to Easter. And then you were baptized at Easter. Now, you might complain, I, I, I guess I would agree with you theologically, oh, they should have baptized you first. You know, as soon as you express faith in Jesus, then you can, you know, then you learn. But the, but the way they thought of it is, they were so persecuted, the world was so pagan and so didn't understand the gospel, we need to school people in Jerusalem for 126 hours before we were confident they even understood what they were baptized into. Wow. And by the way, we have a at least a hundred thousand words of the catechetical lectures from this period, what the catechizers, the teachers, would give them, and oh, 
I was blown away by the level of Bible knowledge that was demanded of learners, uh, by the philosophy, other religions, apologetics. And this is in a period when the church was mostly still low class. I'm not advocating any of these historical applications. I'm just making the point that from the beginning, Christianity was perceived to be, and indeed was, an educational community. Right through the Middle Ages, it was the church who established the first schools in Europe. Did you know that? It was Charlemagne and his churchman sidekick, Alcuin of York, who created literally thousands of schools open to boys and girls, rich and poor. It was churches that established the first universities of Europe in Bologna, then Paris, then Oxford, then Cambridge. There's a reason Cambridge's motto to this day, 800 years after its founding, is still Dominus Illuminatio Mea, Lord is my light. There's a reason the first teacher of the colony of New South Wales was actually the clerk of St. Philip's. He's got a little uh, plaque right there, first school teacher of the colony. We mustn't fall for the skeptical propaganda that the church has always been opposed to deep learning. No. The church was the principal source of learning for at least a thousand years. Nor should we fall for the modern Christian anti-intellectualism that says, no, I just want to experience the Lord and I'm really into orthopraxis, you know, right living rather than orthodoxy, right thinking. No. Everything flows from teaching, from our devotion to the apostolic deposit. There are Christians who have plumbed the depths of some hobby in their life far, far deeper than they know the scriptures and theology. I can understand that in your professional career, lawyer, plumber, whatever, that you would have to, you know, plumb the depths. But I think a genuine Christian should think really seriously if they have a hobby that they know more deeply than they know the scriptures and theology. Would you say you are devoted to the apostles' teaching? May Churchill ever be grounded in the gospel, nourished by teaching. May we know real church growth through the preaching of the gospel. May we trust the whole apostolic teaching, not just the gospel. And may we continue long to be an educational community to the glory of God. Lord, will you please speak to us from your word. Help us to be true disciples, that is, true students of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the apostles he appointed. For we ask it in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.